Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. Here for a special Weekly Standard Podcast is Bill Crystal to talk about the life, legacy, and then the future of uh, Supreme Court politics with the passing of Antonin Scalia. Bill, thanks for your time. Uh, good to be with you again. So you've sat down with uh, Justice Scalia. He came to the Weekly Standard offices a couple of years ago. You got a chance to really go back and forth with him? He came and to visit us. I mean, I've known him over the years. So he was quite quite a good friend of my father and who played was in a poker game with him for, I guess, almost two decades. And with the Chief Justice, with Justice, Justice Rehnquist, and Bob Bork, and Nino Scalia. Apparently a fun game, not very high stakes. Apparently Scalia uh, was a very... Um, uh, loved the game so much that he didn't fold as often as he should have. You know, he's, one of the, you know, he's like such a good-natured and eager guy. He over, you know, he didn't really care that the odds weren't that great. He just didn't want to, didn't want to send a hand out. But um, so I've known him. Really a wonderful man. I mean, obviously super intelligent, but also a fantastic sense of humor uh, and really good nature. You know, he lost an awful lot of fights over the years at the Supreme Court uh, and wasn't thrilled about the way the constitutional law was going, especially in the last several years with the Obamacare decisions and the same-sex marriage decisions and others, but uh, never lost that, that uh, you know, good cheer combined with a kind of mordant wit. He came to the Weekly Standard. Terry Eastland, I remember, invited him to come to a informal, off-the-record sort of sandwiches with, with the entire uh, staff. And it was in January of 2009. We were just looking up uh, what he thought, you know, when that was. And I remember several of the of my younger colleagues who hadn't met him or had seen him maybe at a distance at some you know um, function, but had never actually sat around a table, 20 people with him, were just blown away. I mean, one of them emailed me tonight and said it's one of the most memorable days of his you know tenure at the Weekly Standard. I mean, he was so funny and frank and captivating and had a lot to say about a lot of topics. He wasn't a guy who spent 14 hours a day I mean, thinking about the law. He knew a ton about the law, obviously, in the Constitution. But he was interested in history and philosophy and culture and opera, and, and he could talk about all those things uh, as well. So really a, a remarkable man, obviously a giant of the Supreme Court, and really a giant of, of modern conservatism. One of the uh, lines about people is that we live our way into our thinking rather than think our way into our living. Did Justice Scalia come to his view of the courts and of the proper place for the courts from an ideological place? In other words, did he think his way into it? Or was this kind of his world, his life worldview that he brought that and he brought that sensibility to the court? Yeah, that's hard for me to know because by the time I got to know him, he was, you know, obviously a middle-aged man who already had worked out most of his views. But he had a very well-constructed intellectual view about the role of the courts and especially about the deference uh, necessary to elected officials and, and, and the deep distrust of a kind of judicial arrogance. I think that was really a, a key part of his uh, intellectual, uh, um, you know, uh, what he believed, what he had studied, what he had thought through. Um, and, 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 you know, he, as much as anyone, sort of led to the, the, the modern conservative revival of constitutionalism. You know, once again, you could look at the uh, National Review in the 50s, 60s, even the public interest in the 60s and early 70s. There wasn't that much talk about the American Constitution. There was some, there was a lot of unhappiness with the Warren Court and with judicial activism. But it was Scalia who really said, wait a second, 
judicial legitimacy depends on sticking to the original text of the Constitution. Otherwise, we're just unelected kind of emperors imposing our views. And he worked that out both in law review articles, but also in much more public forums. He and Bob Bork, probably more than anyone else, uh, helped really educate generations of young lawyers and, and also people who weren't lawyers, journalists and just scholars in general, about what really to really think through what constitutional government meant and why we would should respect this, what it meant to respect this constitution under which we were living. So uh, he had a big effect on conservatives beyond just lawyers and law professors. And in that respect, I do think he was really an important part of the broader uh, modern movement of, uh, of intellectual conservatism and political conservatism, not in addition to being, obviously, one of the great Supreme Court justices. Uh, is there a ruling that he uh, played a key role in that you think will have a lasting impact on how we actually live our lives here uh, in the post-Scalia era? I don't know. I mean, he was, I'd say he was in dissent uh, very often. You know, some of his greatest uh, opinions were in dissent. But then, look, dissent, as we know, can live on and can inspire future generations. I think his dissent, and I know I think he thought his dissent in Morrison uh, versus Olson, which is the 1988 independent counsel case, where he was alone in dissent. I think it was seven to one. Uh, and so even other conservatives like Rehnquist went the other way on that one. And he, or maybe Rehnquist recused himself, so maybe it was, that's why it was seven to one. But in any case, he was alone in that case. Um, and uh, he's, I think, been totally vindicated. If you, that's the one I had a chance to look at tonight briefly before the debate. And he has a very strong defense of the separation of powers and how fundamental that is to our constitutional system and to our liberty. And that's something Scalia stressed time and again. You know, it's nice to have these amendments, the First Amendment, et cetera, which do preserve some liberties, some very important ones. But at the end of the day, it's the structure of the government, the separation of powers and federalism, that also, that's more fundamentally even, preserve liberty. And so he was really attentive to that issue at a time when many, many people weren't, many, many people still aren't. And I think if you read Morris and Bielsen, you really learn something. That's a, a text that should be assigned, I think, in every you know, introduction to American government class. But you should really learn something, not just about constitutional law or about that particular aspect of constitutional law, but about the American system of government. So if we could uh, talk to uh, Justice Scalia tonight and say, here's the fight. President Obama says, hey, I'm still president for almost a year. There's a vacancy. I get a Supreme Court justice. And Senator McConnell has said, not a chance. Not going to happen. We're not going to vote on it. What would uh, original intent Antonin Scalia say about that debate? Well, I think original intent and judicial restraint, Antonin Scalia would say, you know what? The president's absolutely entitled to nominate whomever he chooses, and he's absolutely entitled to make a strong pitch for that person. That's what uh, political leadership is about. That's what the president's the presidential prerogative. The Congress is absolutely entitled to choose to advise and consent or not to advise and consent. That's their political prerogative. They're both elected by the people. The court should stay out of it, he would say. And I think he would, in that respect, he would be... Uh, he would welcome. One of the things about Scalia, unlike a lot of judges, is he didn't shy away from politics. He thought the courts had a very important role to play, but one of the roles they should play is allow for vigorous politics and vigorous self-government in this democracy. So I think he would have said, let President Obama make his case. If he can intimidate enough Republican senators to get someone through, I mean, intimidate in an appropriate way sure. by using politics and going to the people, more power to him. But if the Republican senators uh, are tough enough to say, wait a second, 
we're not confirming someone in the last few months of uh, an Obama presidency when the court uh, hangs in the balance. Uh, more power to them. Uh, so that's Antonin Scalia's advice to uh, Senator Mitch McConnell. What's Bill Kristol's advice? I think McConnell has said the right thing, which is he doesn't, has no intention of confirming an Obama appointment at this late date. When you think about it, uh, no one could be, in, even in the normal course of things, it's very unlikely anyone would be confirmed before the end of term at, at the end of June. So then you're talking about confirming someone for a Supreme Court term that begins in October uh, with, a new, with a presidential election coming in November. Uh, there's a long tradition of not confirming federal judicial appointments uh, that are made, nominations that are made in the last year of a, uh, of a presidency, in the eighth year of a presidency in particular. And I think uh, the Republican senators are well within their rights. Now, look, President Obama may find some you know, moderate who's gotten some Republican votes in the past, or quasi-moderate, and try to get cute and uh, put pressure on Republicans to confirm someone. And, and some of the Democrats might welcome having a Supreme Court fight in 2016 because they may think they're have a more popular position on a couple of these uh, issues. I don't know, though. I think, generally speaking, over the last 30, 40 years, whenever the Supreme Court's become a big issue, whenever it's put cleanly to the American people that, look, here's the choice. Do we want judges making all these decisions for us, or do we want to make them uh, in Congress, or more often even in our state legislatures, let the people rule? I think that's a debate Republicans can win. It does put the, in my mind, it makes more important selecting a Republican nominee who has the ability to make that case. It's going to be a big issue. And if Hillary Clinton's a Democratic nominee, whatever one thinks of her, she's not a lawyer and she kind of understands these issues, uh, will have a, and have a very sympathetic media on her side. So having a Republican who really can make the constitutional issues, the issues about the nature and the proper role of the Supreme Court, I think that's quite important. I'd like to see the Republicans who are talking about this you know, uh, appointment by the president make the d- Democratic case, small d, which is this is a lifetime appointment. We're going to have to live with it forever. Let's let the people vote and let's let them factor in the issue of Supreme Court appointments in their vote right up front and put the Democrats in the position of saying, no, 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 we don't want any input from the people. Well, let's get this done before the people can get their hands on the White House again. I th- that's smart policy. Politics and I think a very legitimate argument. Yeah, I agree with that. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's why Republicans will end up in pretty good shape if they have someone though who can make that argument and make it an intelligent way and beat back all some of the, you know, cheap arguments and sophistic arguments that we made on the other side. And it is also true that Justice Scalia's death brings more to the fore generally the importance of the Supreme Court and the fact that it's very closely divided now and that it will go in one direction or another in the next four years. Uh, Again, I was struck in the debate tonight, you know, foreign policy and Supreme Court nominations. Those are the two things the president really has a huge amount of power on. Obviously, Congress has power, too. But uh, in other, in economic policy, tax policy, there the president proposes, but Congress disposes. And often what Congress decides is pretty far from what a president proposes. I wish they had spent more time in that Republican debate on the courts and for that matter on foreign policy, where I think they had some very good exchanges with them. They wanted to move off to discussing everyone's tax plans, which aren't going to end up being uh, resembling that much, whatever legislation actually, you know, gets through Congress. So it is a good reminder that the president is commander-in-chief. The president is the only person who can nominate uh, federal Supreme Court justices and other federal judges. And so an awful lot hinges on uh, picking a nominee who 
will have to make the right judgments in those cases and also can defend his judgments in those cases. And the one candidate who is weakest in those two areas, Donald Trump. And so that's also an interesting turn here uh, a week before the South Carolina primary. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for your uh, comments and uh, reactions to the passing of Antonin Scalia for this special podcast. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.